This is Jim Wills, and you are listening to the Crave Magazine Podcast, where we feed your soul with art. Do what you love with as much passion as you have. Art is a communication from the subconscious of humanity. Art elucidates reality. It elucidates life. Peace and love to everyone. Live in your truth. The universe will take care of the rest. Okay, I'm here this week with Andrew Clark. He is a professional photographer, a recovering real estate entrepreneur from back in the day. He originally hails from Warwickshire, England. Did I say that right? Warwickshire. Warwickshire, England. Warwickshire, England, Birmingham, England, yes. Birmingham, England, the home of... Oh, uh, William Shakespeare. (laughs) The home of Shakespeare. He is a professional photographer. We're going to talk today about photography. So, Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jim, very much for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, and apologies in advance to your long-suffering audience. <laughs> we'll keep it short then. Good, good. <laughs> I always like to start with an inspiration, something that inspires artists. Uh, it can be anything from a quote or a story, book, movie, another artist, piece of art, something that kind of you carry with you as inspiration. What do you got? Wow, that's a tough one. Um, well, the person that inspired me to start photography was my grandmother. I'm sure everybody says that. Um, I was given, you are the first. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, you know, I was given a camera when I was 21, I think it was. Um, started taking pictures. Uh, the real estate business sort of paid for the, the habit, the hobby. Sure. Because I enjoyed it. I was an art scholar at the age of 13, and so taking pictures was a really quick way to make a, a painting. You didn't actually have to make a painting that took hours. You could right. just take a picture. Right. <laughs> and so when I, when I finally decided that I didn't want to do real estate anymore, I said, what can I do? And my wife at the time said, you can probably be a decent photographer. A decent photographer. A decent photographer, yeah. And that was it. So I hung up the real estate sign and opened the photography business and started actually in wedding photography and uh, that was the quickest way to make money and um, that just exploded took me all over the world and got me half a dozen billionaire clients and here I am today going I can't believe this happened really (laughs) remarkable you got away from your inspiration deliberately I'm trying to think of one Uh, yeah. yeah um you know, I've got a couple of pictures on the walls of the studio, which are taken by Annie Leibovitz. Okay. Um, they're original prints that I bought 20, 30 years ago. And when I first started in it, I thought, what is it that makes a photographer great? You know, because we all sort of worship people like Annie. Right. Um, and all these books in the, in the bookshelf are for, you know, famous photographers. People that have a sense of humor and see things that other people don't see, you know, Cartier-Bresson's famous picture of somebody stepping across a puddle mm-hmm. in Paris and Elliot Erwitt's famous picture of the, the dogs. One was a little teeny chihuahua and the other one is a Great Dane, but you can't see more than the legs of the Great Dane. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are super inspiring to me because they show someone saw something that not everyone would have seen. And I think it was, wasn't it Dorothea Lang who said, a camera is an instrument to teach people how to see without a camera. It just hit me, that's such a great idea. Because we walk around and there's beauty everywhere, Mm -hmm. um, but we don't take time to see it. And sometimes it takes 
you know, just sort of standing at a different angle and using a camera to see a picture that is there. And, you know, it just takes a little bit of extra time to look for it. Sure. I love that. I used to say I used to shoot a lot of fashion and I would say the photographer's job is to find the beauty in everything they shoot. And it's kind of the same thing of like seeing that that is already there that other people may not see right. unless they see it through a photo, which is really interesting. There's an amazing photographer in Denver called Rich Faninsky, who um, no one's ever heard of because he's actually a software salesperson. He works for a big software company. But his photography, which is his hobby and his passion, is stunning. Mm -hmm. He will stand in a place where you and I will stand and he will take a picture that we just can't make. And that is, to me, the, the, the true essence of a great photographer. The yeah. true essence. Yeah. He sees things that other people just have no clue how to capture. <laughs> I wish but, I was that good. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a great kind of inspiration to, I think, for anybody, any artist, of, yeah. of like seeing what it is they're capturing in a way that other people don't see it. You yeah. Know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you talked a little bit about your history and, and where you came from, so let's get into that a little bit. You were born and raised in England, in Warwick, Warwickshire? Warwickshire. And uh, you said you had studied art or you went to art, you became yeah, an Yeah, I, um, I was at a uh, you know, school with a great art teacher and um, she nurtured everybody. And um, you know, it turned out that I liked it and we had plenty of practice. And she said, why don't you take an art scholarship to this school? And so I did. And that was the equivalent of high school. Okay. And... Um, it was the very first time they'd ever offered a heart scholarship at this school. And so there were only three applicants <laughs> and somehow I got it, which nice. was a miracle. Um, but that was sort of like, wow, you know, this gives me confidence. I'll carry on. Sure. And uh, I carried on with ceramics and woodwork and um, obviously painting and drawing. Then later, photography. Because photography was a very expensive hobby. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And um, I couldn't afford a camera. Um, I couldn't afford film, but all my friends who had one were like gods to me because they were doing something that, you're a photographer? Oh my God, that's so cool. Everyone wanted to be a National Geographic photographer yeah. you know, in yeah. those days. And then I finally got a camera given to me and I bought a little bit of film and I was like, I gotta be really careful how I use every frame, <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh no, I just, I was trying to squeeze 38 frames out of a roll of 36 pictures. Sure, sure. Uh, and then I learned how to do... You load it right on the very first sprocket. Yes, So that yes. way you can get maximum. Completely, <laughs> in the dark. And then I learned how to... Um, actually, when I came to Denver, I took a class in black and white printing at CU Boulder. Mm -hmm. um, that was still in the days when we were developing our own film. And, um, you know, that was fun. And then suddenly in 2000, 2001, when I quit the real estate business... I had this dilemma, shall I do what this new thing is called digital, or shall I just buy a big old medium format camera and carry on with two and a quarter film? And for some reason, I don't quite know why, I decided that I'd get a Canon digital camera, a D1. Mm -hmm. The only trouble was that they were sold out because the Salt Lake Olympics had, had basically sucked up the entire production of the new 1Ds for the sports guys. Okay, this is in 2001, I 2000? Think 2000, was it 2000? Yeah, I, I always so. forget. Anyway, it was the millennium. Everyone, the, the, sure. the, the clocks were going back or forwards or sideways. <laughs> Losing or, everything. Yeah, it was crazy. So 
Anyway, I ended up getting a camera, a D1, from somebody on eBay who must have died because there were just none available. And they were 5,000 bucks a pop. Yeah. So I was the very first wedding photographer in Colorado to get a digital camera, I think. And, of course, all the software, the applications on the computers, how you handle digital files, how you printed them. This was all new territory. Mm -hmm. um, there were books coming out by a friend of mine, you know, digital photography Bible and this type of thing, which, which I was actually helping write these books. And after a couple of years, people started to say, oh, digital's not a bad idea. It's just as good as film, lo and behold. And, um, you know, the rest is history. You know, it suddenly became ubiquitous and the barrier to entry in the wedding photography business plummeted. And everyone who had a digital camera was suddenly shooting two, three, four, five thousand pictures at a wedding. And, you know, five of them were great. Right. Um, right. So the, the business come a long way. It's got very commoditized. Um, I was lucky because I had super clients and, you know, I think being first to market in some way had helped. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, we, it's a different business today. You had sure. mentioned a couple of times real estate, and we yeah. talked about real estate at the intro. Yeah. You got into that, you started that in, in England. Was yes, that right? um, I had a, a, a bachelor's degree in urban property administration, so I was doing commercial valuations and management and development and things like that. I did investment acquisitions here, and I bought a couple of properties myself um, this studio, in fact, was, I suppose, a commercial acquisition, sure, a absolutely. renovation. So, yeah, um, but the brokerage business here is pretty cutthroat, and I wasn't really having any fun. And the creative business struck me as something where I could, you know, exercise the creative gene yeah. and uh, really enjoyed creating things, yeah. making pictures. And, and, and people were happy all the time. <laughs> commercial, <laughs> commercial real estate is the exact opposite of weddings. <clears throat> they don't know why they're hiring you. They're kind of resentful. They uh, have to hire you? They have to hire you sometimes. You know, they might pay you at the end of a transaction, oh and who cares if they've got anything to show for it. Right. In weddings, everyone's happy. They know who I am before they hire me, and they pay me in advance. Yeah. They're even happier when they see the pictures, and the pictures last forever. So, gosh, you know, I've done something that might last more than, you know, a year. And yeah. that's really rewarding. That's definitely why I do it. I love to see, you know, people's faces when they see their pictures. You had talked a little bit about digital. I used my first digital camera in 1996, I think it was. 1990, yeah, six. 95, yeah. maybe 94, something like that. But it was a digital back, and it was, I think it was $50,000. Yeah. The studio I worked at, we leased it, and it took a picture that I think was about maybe four megapixels, maybe. Yeah. The Leaf, yeah. those yeah. cameras, or the, the, the yeah. phase one. Yeah, phase one, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and then we shot digital at Disney a little bit. I never used it for commercial job at Disney, but we shot it. We had some digital cameras. We started using them. So I moved out here in 2001, and I teamed up with a photographer in Boulder, and I kept pushing him for digital. And he had, he was like, "No way, man! Like digital's not going to happen." And I remember going <laughs> to a Photoshop conference or some kind of digital photography conference yeah. here in Denver, and seeing pictures that people were shooting with like the the 1D and the D1 and whatnot, and and they were every bit as good at film at that size, like eight by ten or whatever. Yeah. And I was like, "This is going to change everything." Yeah, and we were all anticipating the day when the the 
35 millimeter DSLR digital cameras would suddenly have enough pixels to be comparable to a Hasselblad picture. Yeah. Yeah. Where yeah. you could sort of <laughs> blow up this 10 megapixel file to become as clear as a, you know, the, the Hasselblad was the, was the, the gold standard. Yeah. And of course now, I mean, I don't even know how many pixels my camera has. I, I didn't need that many pixels about three generations ago. Sure, yeah. Uh, and today, ironically, we need even less because people just don't even bother to print them. Right. We just share online. So in some ways, we should be just taking screenshots of everything because that's as clear as it ever needs to be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, Especially weird. if you're using a large monitor because that's yeah. going to be scaled down to someone's mobile phone. Yeah. This, this um, iPhone I'm holding has a much larger file than my very first 1D. Yeah. And um, you can't argue with that. And now that Apple has all this clever software, that portrait mode and stuff like that, it's, it's kind of like using a 35 millimeter 1.4 lens and the pictures look awesome. I know, I know. You know, yeah, yeah. I told you before we started recording, I've, I shot a job on my phone because my camera failed and, yeah. and I got away with it. And this was six years ago, you know? And yeah, so I could it's it. come so far today. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure that we'll have DSLRs will yeah. be necessary in the future, yeah. you know, whether we yeah. still use them or... I did shoot a wedding with my iPhone. I was a guest at the wedding, but okay. I did shoot the wedding as a favor. And they loved the pictures. It was just, you know, 35 millimeter camera and I'm standing around and taking pictures and <laughs> <laughs> they turned out well. What's your, uh, what's your favorite thing about being a photographer? Hmm. Besides the joy and the smiles that you bring. Yeah, it's got to be the freedom of um, sort of doing what I love every day. Yeah. Um, you know, a friend of mine once said, retire early and often. So I felt like I'm, I'm retired. You do feel that way today? I, I do, because if I was, you know, 65 and I was saying, hey, I'm going to retire from a job, you say, what would you do? And I'd say, well, I'd do photography all day, every day. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I do all day, every day. Okay. And now filmmaking, um, which is you know a far more complicated version of photography. But yeah, I think I like the. I like visualizing things. I like making a picture that is beautifully lit and has a story behind it. Um, I do like telling documentaries stories with pictures. Yeah. Um, people, people have very very little time to read anything, but they have just enough time to look at a picture because it only takes about a second or two. To understand what it's all about. Right. right. If your picture has, you know, airtime of more than three or four seconds, you've made a fantastic picture. <laughs> right. you if know. someone pauses, oh god, it <laughs> never happens. <laughs> and now my friend Rich Vanitsky stopped me in my tracks with a picture that he'd taken of those horsemen in, I think it's Tibet, the Mongolian horsemen that, that hunt with the eagles. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And he had a picture of three horsemen charging through a gigantic puddle with these eagles on their hands and I was looking at the picture thinking that's just astounding to get stop motion <laughs> the horses are all in the perfect position the, 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 the eagles are all in the perfect position and of course I, I called him immediately I said did you photoshop that and he goes no I just took it <laughs> we had to do it a couple times but I did take it yeah I said that is stunning yeah stunning one of those shots that just catches you isn't that amazing that your first thought was is this photoshopped Sadly, this is what, you know, you do today because yeah. you see a lot of stuff that you just can't tell. <clears throat> and I think with digital, we've seen the, the overall standard of pictures has gone up. Mm -hmm. 
And subconsciously we think, everything's really amazing today, but we just forget that probably half of all the pictures we see are probably are photoshopped. Yeah. Even press photographs, which, of course, you know, the rule is you're not allowed to, they still enhance them a little bit. You know, maybe they lighten the shadows and sharpen it and increase the contrast and they've probably cropped it. Is that, you know, a misrepresentation of the truth? Eh, kind of, if you're a purist. Right. If you're a purist, yeah. As a, as a photojournalist, I cropped and maybe adjusted levels, exit levels brightness, Exposure, contrast, right. things like that. Yeah, I was yeah. very careful not to manipulate yeah. beyond that. I mean, you know, there was a huge debate way back about whether or not you should even crop. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, because you're already cropping in the camera. Right, right. right you're right. already making it into a yeah, whatever a square, proportion a you're in. Right, right. Which is also interesting because as a photographer growing up and, you know, I studied with 35 and I shot with medium format. I always had a hard time getting myself out of that box, out of that four by six box or that four by five box. And yeah. I had a friend and she didn't care at all. Like when she first started entering into photography, she started with digital mm -hmm. and she'd take a picture and then she'd just crop to whichever she wanted in the photo. Mm -hmm. And they would be the most random. Like she didn't care what the proportions were. Didn't matter mm -hmm. to her. Yeah. And I was like, how does that like that needs to fit in a frame or needs to fit in something. And finally, it took that for me to break out of that mold. It was so hard. I always wanted to be in that proportion that I was trained to be in. And That's really interesting you say that. I think, I think some photographers, are, they, they don't feel constrained by the three to two ratio or the four by five ratio. And I've always felt really inadequate in many ways because... I'm so constrained by the two to three and the rule of thirds. And mm -hmm. sometimes I look at pictures that other people have taken and I get incredibly jealous because they've <laughs> just made this beautiful picture that breaks all the rules. And, yeah. and I'm thinking, how do you do that? How do you look through that little square viewfinder and feel that liberated to be able to just take a picture that's, you know, it doesn't even feel like it has borders. Right, right. And um, maybe that's just because I'm completely anal and scientific about everything <laughs> probably is. I think but, that maybe came from the film days. For me at least, like because you shoot within those constraints on film, mm. there is a limit to how, how much you can crop in before it gets grainy, before you lose detail, whatever. But digital has become so good nowadays. Even on your phone, you know, you can shoot an image and yeah. crop it to any dimension just totally. about and then Squares. blow that thing up to a 16 by 20 and it's totally fine. And that's what, I think that was her thing is like, I can crop it however, and it'll, the quality will still be great. Where I was concerned, if I crop it, now I have to blow it back up to the, that two by three or whatever it is, yeah. and it loses quality. I think, you know, the, the double-edged sword of digital was that we started out with <clears throat> four or five megapixels per frame, and we couldn't crop because everything would go fuzzy. Mm -hmm. Now we have 20, 30, pick a number, megapixels per frame, and we can easily crop to anything and still get a, you know, a 20 by 20 print. So I think the evolution has been interesting. For me, I've found, I felt the artistic growth has come from being feeling less constrained, shooting with a wide angle lens and just putting the subject somewhere in the frame and then doing the crop later and not worrying about every square inch of the, the viewfinder. Yeah. It varies, but that's definitely been a, a creative sort of exploration over the last you know, couple of years. I had a mentor early on in my digital career and he kind of had that philosophy. We still stayed within that constraint, but 
you know, he'd often look at the picture and go, why do you have this in here? Crop that out, crop into it, crop yep. tighter to your yep. subject. Yep. I would get that all the time from him. And, and so I learned to crop in camera, but then I realized, you know what, if I leave it a little bit wider, then I can make those decisions afterwards. And, and with digital, you become, like you mentioned darkroom earlier, most people today that come into photography don't know, don't know darkroom. They've never been in, stepped in a darkroom or whatever. Exactly. And I think that that holdoff from darkroom taking that transference to digital is makes us different as photographers from someone who just picked up a digital camera and went straight into the computer. Yes, without, without a doubt. When I teach my workshops for portraiture, people always ask, can I see your, would you look at, would you look at my portfolio? And I do. And I'd say without exception, 90% people, their pictures aren't cropped tight enough. Mm -hmm. And even when I show them exactly the crop I want, head, shoulders to the waist, for example, vertical portrait mode, most students take a picture and they've got the knees and vast amounts of background and I've shown them exactly where to stand and how to take the picture, but they still stand a little far away and leave, they don't, they don't crop. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe that's a, a skill that requires tons and tons of practice. Yeah. And yeah. you know, you, you don't realize it until you've been taking pictures for a while that you've actually been cropping, you know, to save yourself the crop later <laughs> for a long time, right? Right, right. right. It's interesting. What, uh, what are some challenges that you have as a photographer? Money. <laughs> Making money. Um, so I get into the true artist here. Yeah, geez. I, I would imagine that most uh, photographers listening to this will probably say, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> it's really difficult. Do you think it's more difficult in the digital age? Oh, yeah, without question. Yeah, when I started out, there was this difference between guys who shot film and, and one or two people who used digital. Mm -hmm. And the film guys hated the digital guys because they didn't have any cost of click. You know, if you've got to buy film, you've got to pay for it. Yeah. If, but, of course, in those days, a one megabyte card, CF card, only one megabyte was $999. I remember my first, I bought six CF cards for my first digital camera and they cost more than the camera. $6,000 in cards, $5,000 for the camera. So it was, it, was, it was capital intensive. Today it's not as capital intensive. You can have a laptop, you know, a nice 5D Mark III, four, whatever it is today, uh, a couple lenses, and then your cost of production is, you know, stable. Mm -hmm. Of course, you've got to replace your computer every year, you've got to replace your camera every couple of years, et cetera, et cetera. So you have overhead. And I think the cost of digital, uh, a digital studio is actually much more significant than people think. A lot of people get into weddings thinking, wow, I can make $1,500 or $23,000 for a wedding. And, um, you know, my, my camera only cost me three grand. Well, you got hours and hours of editing. Yeah. You got to upgrade all your storage. You got to maintain all your lenses. And then they keep giving you, you know, the camera companies give you new drugs every two years. <laughs> There's a whole new body. There's a whole new set of lenses. And so you're just constantly upgrading. And I reckon today I probably spend at least 10,000 bucks a year on upgrading my gear, at least. Hmm. And that's probably not even including computers. Yeah. So finding clients that will pay, you know, professional fees for photographers and see the value in a photographer's service is 
is much harder than you think, especially when a lot of commercial companies say, yeah, we've got this photograph, photography job, we need someone to go shoot these models, or we need someone to go shoot this, this house, or this new building, or these products. First question, does anyone know any photographers? Yeah, all the hands go up in the office. Yeah, my brother does this. Oh, my <laughs> sister, yeah. Um, like a friend of mine has just left college. He's really good and he's just starting out. Why don't you give it him? He'll do it for 500 bucks. And suddenly a day rate of 1,500 or 2,000, fingers crossed, is, is undermined. Mm -hmm. And so it's been a race to the bottom um, because everyone has a good enough. Don't forget, we only need to show this picture online, so it only has to be 72 DPI. Um, we don't need the 20,000 megapixel camera, right. uh, not really. Um, and an awful lot of people today are just taking pictures and putting them on social media. Their shelf life is a second or two. And, you know, people aren't really paying attention to whether or not it's good photography until you get into, you know, the glossy magazines. So commodity photographers, commercial photographers are just churn, churn, churn as much work as they can possibly get. Doesn't really matter what it is. Unfortunately, I've got a studio and a few good clients that pay professional rates for us to do a really, you know, clear, good quality, reliable job. They have a good time. They know that it'll be done on time, it'll be done well, and that is a good, you know, that's a good niche. But believe me, every time I shoot a job, I think there's gonna be some student who's doing just as good a job at you know, borrowing someone's studio and lights and the, the trade is simple. Mm -hmm. The science is simple. And I'm, you know, st still trying to figure out how to compete without burning myself out. I was going to sure. say, how do, you, how do you stand out then? I think, you know, just enough gray hair to be believable. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> no, no, you know, I mean, 35 years in Denver, I know loads and loads of people. And yeah. someone may have come to my studio for a party one day and had a good time and someone says, hey, do you know a photographer? And they go, yeah, there was that one guy. I forget his name. <laughs> he had a really fun party. Yeah, 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 exactly. The studio was cool. Right. Yeah. And if I'm lucky, they might remember. I had a client when I lived in Boulder, manufacturing client, and they had some widgets. They had come to me and said, you know, can you do this? And I was like, sure. And so I had them for a couple of years and then one year they were like, well, we're not gonna do it this year. They made some excuse and they didn't hire me for mm. their annual catalog, whatever it was. And it was a year later they came back to me and said, hey, um, we, we wanna work with you again. And it was because they went and hired somebody's brother who was 500 bucks or and whatever. And it didn't work out, yeah. And shot garbage for him. <laughs> and that was, that was 2002, 2003. Yeah. And I think today, if he or she, that person can, can crop the photo, can take a decent enough exposure and the composition is well enough that they can crop in to get what they need, then he would probably get that job over me, you yeah. know, just because yeah. of the cost. Yeah, I always say I want to be the second best photographer. The top guy is always getting shot at by everybody. And, <laughs> right. And he's there, therefore he's too expensive. You know, and my fees were huge for weddings. Mm -hmm. I mean, some weddings I photographed, I six-figure fees, um, which is unheard of. But, you know, if you're shooting a... $10 million wedding, it's nothing right. in the grand scheme of, you know, the flower budget, which was half a million. Yeah. yeah so yeah. whatever. But in the, in, the, in the daily grind of how do you compete, don't be the most expensive. Definitely be the nicest. Be the most curious and provide all those other services that other photographers don't even think about. Right. 
I almost see myself as a consultant for some of these companies now because they want, well, how should we shoot this? Uh, well, what sort of colors should we do? Well, what do you think of our brand? Because I'm an opinionated Englishman, I have a lot to say. <laughs> uh, that probably helps Yeah, here in America. And it almost People sounds believable. Yeah, um, it's got that funny accent. That's he, right. He must know what he's talking about. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I find like you talk about weddings, you know, and as you know, if you're if there's no like wedding coordinator, the photographer is the wedding coordinator. Oh, and I found yes. shooting commercial, that becomes the same way. If there's no art director, right. the photographer is often the art director. And like you said, Definitely. helping to guide the client through the process yep. of, yep. they don't necessarily know what they want. They know what they don't like when they see it, but you can guide them to what's going to give the best example of their product yep. or whatever. And the hardest part today is that so much is taken with an iPhone and just posted immediately onto someone's social media. Mm -hmm. And that is considered good enough. And for most of the time it is. But a lot of clients who may be, let's say an outdoor company or something, they make bikes or whatever. They might have had the intern shooting with his iPhone for a while and the pictures are fine. They're not that magical, shallow depth of field, really sort of juicy picture that you see in the you know, Patagonia magazine. Mm -hmm. But they're good enough. And so to explain to the client, Instead of paying an intern zero, you suddenly have to budget $5,000 for a shoot. They go, wow, I never realized it was that expensive. Seriously? <laughs> and then you have to justify it. Right. How do you justify it? Well, you just have to show them pictures you've done. And a lot of times, my, you know, my new clients come from referral. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, my favorite phrase in the world is, oh, yeah, you've got to use Andrew. He's great. Yeah. That's all you need. That's how my wedding business grew into the stratosphere and how I think today you, everyone has a pedigree, you know, and you, hopefully you have five-star Google review. Hopefully you have a five-star Yelp review. That's sort of the baseline. If you don't have that, give up because <laughs> everyone else does. Right. And so, yeah, we have a little studio here, which is unusual. I have an assistant full-time, which is an, uh, unusual. So I suppose we're very responsive. And for today's fast-paced world, everyone wants everything yesterday. Yeah. And I really can produce stuff yesterday, uh, which is, you know, that's just the name of the game. You know, the wedding business was baptism by fire right. because it's every type of photography, product, portraiture, photojournalism, sports, you've got to anticipate, architectural, and you've got to do it all under pressure, on a day, anywhere, any light, unwilling subjects, and no redos. Mm -hmm. And that's why I started that, because I wanted that pressure. I wanted to feel how terrifying it is. And I was terrified. Every time I went to a wedding, I was totally terrified. Still am. But that's, that's, that gets me out of bed in the morning. It's exciting. I was terrified in the film days. Yes. Less yes. terrified now, but I was, yeah, yes. I had that, I've experienced that many times. Yes. Yes. And because you know, if you screw it up, man. Yeah. Well, the lab screws up your film. Oh. That yeah. used to happen. Yeah. That used to happen. What's your favorite thing to shoot? Gotta say people. People? Yeah. Uh, in portrait style or more just like fashion or candids or? I think if, you know, I think if I was honest, I'd say, the reason I like shooting portraits is because I get to sit and talk to somebody okay. um, about an interesting story. And then they relax, they 
produce a good picture because, I mean, the subject really produces the picture, not the photographer. Right. And they see it and they go, wow, that's the best picture that's been taken of me in ages. And I go, awesome. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. And there is a science to it. You know, sadly, most photographers today don't realize there's a science to facial analysis and lighting and how to pose the head and the arms and the body mm -hmm. so that you do make someone look as good as they could look. You, you talked a little bit about pricing, and I, and I wanted to bring circle back around to it because I think that I find that many artists, especially younger artists, don't know how to price themselves. Very true. And, and uh, what I found with weddings is I shot weddings for a long time, and it wasn't something that I loved to do, but like you said, it's trial by fire. It, it's, it's photographing people on their happiest day, so it's always a fun kind of experience. There's a lot of pluses to it, but I, it wasn't my favorite kind of photography. Mm -hmm. I found the way I could limit myself was to price myself higher. And I thought I, was, I would price myself out. Oh, yeah. And then I found, holy crap, there are people that are going to pay. Oh, yeah. That's, that's part of my wedding photography course is um, how do you price yourself? Well, how much is your 8 by 10 in the old days? Today, we're providing a service, which is to produce great, great memories. Story, a story of pictures. Are you good at producing a story of pictures? That's question one. If the answer is yes, you then have some value. Mm -hmm. And like you say, um, if someone's spending, let's say, $100,000 on the wedding, they might spend five or 10000 on pictures out of that budget. I reckon somewhere between 5 and 10% is a decent estimate for how much the photographer is worth. So if you want to make more than you know, 10000 bucks for a wedding, you've got to photograph the weddings that are gigantic, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000. They exist just like you know, people buy Maseratis. People spend a million bucks on their wedding. Yeah. Not many people do, but you've still got to meet those people and convince them that you're the right person to photograph. Yeah, absolutely. So that was my kind of business model. Be good enough, be nice, try and meet the people who are going to spend a lot of money on a, on a big wedding so that you will at least have a shot at offering your services. Mm -hmm. And if you're doing a consistently good job, and this is the big, the big problem that most photographers, wedding photographers have, they're not consistent. They get one or two good weddings, but then you put them in a strange environment and they're sunk. They can't shoot indoors or the ceiling was black or it was raining or something mm -hmm. um, and they, they fail. And if you fail at a wedding, your career is pretty much over because everyone goes, yeah, we gave, we gave him 10,000 bucks and he didn't get any good pictures. Well, that's death. Right. It's really hard to produce bad pictures at a wedding because the client always loves them. But you can imagine how awful the pictures must be if the client says, yeah, we heard this photographer and the, the pictures sucked. Mm -hmm. It's really scary. But sadly, there's a lot of people like that and their careers are, you know, last a month. So consistency is really important, which means you have to be good at all sorts of different, everywhere, every lighting, you know, any weather. That has to be practiced. And there's no substitute for lots and lots of practice. I didn't really start getting consistently large weddings for about four or five years. My fees were going up, but I wasn't photographing the million dollar weddings until I'd been doing it for about five or six years. It was sort of, oh yeah, we used Andrew Clark, he's fine. Yeah, you can trust him. Yeah, yeah, he's great, blah, 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 you know. And so you get passed around. Mm -hmm. And um, that's how I ended up doing some 
I mean, insane weddings. What's one piece of advice you give to someone who's starting out as a photographer, who wants to get into weddings or even portraiture or have a studio? Hmm. One piece of advice. Hmm. Or two or three. You know. <laughs> You're an Englishman, you probably have opinions. <laughs> have, have, have integrity and enjoy what you do without question. Okay. Um, I think today... Say that again? Have integrity and enjoy what you do. Love what you do. Because if you don't love it, you're not going to want to do it. Okay. And it'll show. Yeah. If you don't have integrity, you'll take a wedding on September the 6th and someone else will call and say, here's a bigger wedding for September the 6th. And you go, huh, okay. I'll call back that other person and say, oh, you know, I won't be able to make your wedding after all. I hope that's okay. Bye. And this happens. Well, let's get into some deep questions. Uh-oh. You ready? <laughs> as, a, as an you artist. Be careful with deep questions. Deep down, I'm really shallow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> let's bring it out then. As an artist, why should we care about art? That is a deep question. You know, art is the... It's the, it's the, it's the expression of human creativity, um, which is the expression of human emotion. So... If a piece of art doesn't elicit an emotional response, it's not really a piece of art, mm -hmm. you know. And of course, you can debate this forever. You know, I grew up in England with where the Tate Gallery famously presented a, a collection of bricks on the floor. I think it was two bricks deep and about 10 bricks by eight bricks. And the artist had put this in, on the floor of the Tate Gallery. And the Tate Gallery, in their wisdom, said, this is art. And, of course, it created a massive uproar because how can they spend half a million pounds on a pile of bricks? And all these people in the country, oh, I could have done that. Well, yeah, you could. Um, is it art? Is it, why is it art? It's art because someone says it is. You know, that's unfortunately a lot of galleries today have taken the position that they are the, the arbiter and, the, and the, therefore the creator. And I think art's just a very, very personal response to something that's either, you know, surprising or beautiful or painful. For me, I like beautiful things. Okay. Um, I'm not a fan of art that sort of shocks because it makes me feel uncomfortable. It might make me feel violent. I, I want art to promote harmony and peace rather than anger and frustration and fear. Okay. And I debate this with my friends at the MCA all the time when they show pictures of people vomiting into the camera and urinating on each other. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this, is, this, this material would be banned if it was six feet the other side of this wall mm -hmm. in the street. But because it's inside a museum, why is it suddenly acceptable? And so to me, art is something that it inspires a peaceful, loving, beautiful emotion in human beings. Um, because that is a good thing we could spread in society. Sure. Absolutely. And if I have a mission, I want to spread that, not the other. What about the idea of the communication? It's still creating communication or it's creating conversation, I guess. Oh, no question. There's, <clears throat> there's all sorts of things that create communication and good, good debate. And 
Yeah, I, I was born debating. You know, all Brits, all they do is debate. <laughs> right, right, true. <laughs> you know, if we can't argue about something, it's not worth it. Wherein lies our, our weak opinion on everything. <laughs> uh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, you're getting me debating all of a sudden. Well, you know, like, let's look no, at, uh, for example, like Jim Carrey. Yeah. Jim Carrey has transitioned his career from, I mean, he still acts, but, yep. you know, he's, he's become known now as a political satirist, mm-hmm. political artist, mm-hmm. most of the art that he does. I mm-hmm. think it's really fascinating, and, and when he's not creating, making a political statement with his art, yep. his art is really beautiful, I find, yep. some, some of it. But he creates conversation by... Yep addressing the current political situation of the day. Yes. And what's also interesting is he does these great big paintings and puts them on Instagram. Yeah. For a for a mobile phone of three to five inches big. You I know, know what I mean? That's like, cool. But he'll do this giant painting. And uh, that's still art, though, isn't it? Sure. You know, anything that inspires evolution and passes good knowledge from our generation to the one behind us yeah. is... You know, it's one of the reasons we exist. So what do you want to leave the world as an artist? Oh, that's a really good question. And one which I just came up with an answer to. Hmm. Okay. Um, I decided this year in January that I would make a documentary about education, the crisis in education. Public education of our youth? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's very hard to afford a great education in this country. Look at the number of students who are going into debt and going bankrupt. Yeah, for sure. I think there's a structural crisis there that everyone is sort of ignoring. Certainly with a daughter who just started in college and then decided to bail out because it was A, too expensive, and B, couldn't see the relevance. Mm -hmm. And she was doing a liberal arts degree with an art scholarship. Um, And, you know, three cheers for that. (laughs) <laughs> it was it was it was um, it was it was an intelligent decision that said something's something's broken here. We, we you know she's highly intelligent and just doesn't quite know what she wants to do yet, right? But millions of kids go to college thinking, I just got to get a degree. I just got to I just got to spend forty fifty thousand dollars a year for four years, and then I'm home home and free. And you come out with. 50 grand of debt mm-hmm. and you realize you can't you, you have to take the first job that comes along right which is forty thousand dollars a year maybe 50 i mean national statistics the average college grad makes forty eight thousand five hundred dollars. <laughs> i was gonna say 50 seems high for a college <laughs> yeah. grad but when i first came to denver 35 years ago my job was three thousand a month plus commission for leasing a building so i'd take home maybe 50 Mm-hmm. if I was lucky, 35 years ago. Inflate that at 3%, and that's $120,000 today. For the same standard of living, I lived in a little one-bedroom, I had a little car, I had enough money for a beer on a Friday, and maybe a, a day skiing. And I could possibly take out a girlfriend once a month if I saved up. <laughs> okay. Today, you need $120,000 to do that. Right. And people keep denying that. Oh, no, no. But look around. The average, the average household in America is no longer 1.5 people. It's 2.5 people because everyone shares a two-bedroom or a three-bedroom or a house, whatever. Not many people live on their own because yeah. it's so expensive. Health insurance, colossally expensive. Car insurance, cars, all these different things. Everything's gone up. But we still expect our students graduating to work for the same salary as we had 35 years ago. 
that is insane. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think education is a really, really, really important thing that we just are neglecting. It solves every problem in the world overnight if you can educate a generation to be free-thinking, smart, kind, loving, learned, confident, all those things. And it, it solves international disputes. It solves religious disputes. It solves everything. It's the fundamental building block. If we can't teach the young in our tribe to grow up intelligently, better, take care of the older people, take care of the younger people, we will just basically extinguish ourselves. Mm -hmm. And education has been very, very profoundly affected by the iPhone. Now that we don't actually have to remember anything, because when you and I went to school, the job was make sure you remember this because you're going to be tested. Yeah. yeah. And we'd go to the library and it would take us a whole day to look up something because we couldn't find the book. And we'd have to sit there and read it <laughs> and write notes and then remember those notes for the test. Yep. Today, in the real world, what's the square root of 395? It's on my iPhone. Right. You know, who's the president of Uganda? Um, it's on my iPhone. Where is Mauritius? It's all there. And so you don't have to remember anything, but we still test people for their knowledge instead of testing them for their attitude or their people skills or their creative thought or their ability to collaborate. So until we flip the function and the training that takes place in schools to something that addresses the technology we have, the world problems we have, we're just going to basically, we're in a nosedive in the plane. Mm -hmm. And so I feel really strongly about that. And when I teach in junior achievement, I teach something called life skills. It's not really economics or, okay. or mathematics. I was, or a, GA, I was a G, G, JA person back in the day. Yeah. yeah oh, you were too? As a kid. As a, I was in junior student. achievement right, right. Yeah, as a kid. Yeah, yeah. We, made, we made a wooden coaster. It's fantastic. Yeah. It's hands-on, and the yeah. kids light up because it's fun. relevant. It's real fun. So I want to try and light people up with stuff that's relevant. Well, so we're talking about education. As an, again, going back to artist artistry, what piece of advice would you give to a young artist who's starting out? Become a master. Become a master. Yep. Okay. Everyone has a niche and a purpose and a passion. Play to your strengths. What do you think? What do you think holds them back from becoming a master? Oh, fear, always. <clears throat> Self-doubt, maybe an environment that doesn't encourage, you know, something creative. <clears throat> I didn't. I didn't start, you know, being a photographer, if that's a creative career, until, you know, I was 40, 38. Um, so start young, definitely. All the people who are really good, and the, the guys that I hire for doing Photoshop or filmmaking, whatever it is. They're 25. Had a guy in here last week, intern, yeah, actually coming back in a couple of hours. He started making films when he was 16 and he loves it. And he's really good. He's way better than me. He's been doing it for 10 years. I've only been doing it for four. Yeah. You know, and there's just stuff you learn. You know, you learn shortcuts, you learn tricks, you learn to look at things a different way. And it's practice. You know, I was going to say, how do you come over, overcome that fear? <clears throat> and I think you nailed it right there with practice. Oh, practice, no question. Fear is a common 
statement that I, almost every artist I've interviewed has mentioned is, yeah. is fear. It, and it's and lack it's, of practice is what they really say. Okay. Because my question then is how, do, how does one overcome that fear? Because that's, it's easy to say, well, fear is what's holding yeah. you back. This picture on the wall over here behind me is <clears throat> by a, a photographer called Jay Maisel in New York. Mm -hmm. And he's the, probably the most pro prolific commercial photographer you could ever imagine. He's been taking pictures ever since he was three. I don't know. But he is a master. And he's not afraid of trying something brand new and crazy because we're always inventing new things. Um, and if we aren't, we're dying. And I'm guilty of this because sometimes I just sit around and go, when's my next portrait client coming? <laughs> Instead of saying, like I did yesterday to a friend who's a photographer, when, when are we going to go out and shoot some new crazy stuff? Yeah. Because you're only going to get better. And if you're going to be competitive, if you're going to make a living at it, it's got to show that you love what you do because enthusiasm is contagious. Skill is highly compelling. But someone who just sits around and, eh, well, you know, I'm doing it on the side. All my students who come to my portrait workshop, hands up who's doing photography on the side. All the hands go up. Are you, do you want to be a photographer? Oh, yeah, we really do. But once, you know, I've got good at this, then I can maybe leave my job and I just need to learn it. Well, just leave your job because you know what? You'll get really good really quickly right, right, if you've got right. all day every day to practice. It doesn't take long to get good enough to make a living. It really doesn't. I was shocked when I quit real estate. I booked a wedding, oh, in the first month. And I never had a wedding picture to show. I just showed pictures of, you know, my world travels or something. And they go, wow, these are great pictures. But, you know, you'd been practicing and taking pictures that are cool and everyone's got 20 good pictures. Sure. Even with their iPhone, Jim. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I think that also goes to the idea of, like, don't, as an artist, for sure, don't be afraid to fail. No question. Failure is the only way you learn. Nobody, want, nobody got better because someone said, oh, these are amazing. They got better because someone said, if you don't fix this, I'm going to kill you. Right, you right, know? right. So, I don't know. I think all the people who are really, really good at something and make it look effortless, they're the ones who work incredibly hard compared to what mortals like you and me do. But they really are just doing their passion. Mm -hmm. And it's not work. I mean, I probably work, I don't know, 80, 90 hours a week, I suppose. But it's not work. Right. It's just like I do it on the weekends because I love it. Right. 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 You know, I'm thinking about it all the time. If you had uh, 60 seconds with 20-year-old Andrew, what advice would you give yourself, knowing what you know today? Start investing savings earlier so I could have money to retire on. That's number one. I tell that to my kids all the time. I like that. Let's stop there for a second. Yeah. Because that's something as an artist, I think going back to that idea of the struggling artist or yep. the starving artist, it applies to everybody who's young, but oh God, especially yeah. the artist of, yeah. of like, save a portion of your income and learn how to invest it. Rigorous, yeah. And, and don't just invest it in the bank because oh God, no. there's no, you talked earlier, you mentioned about 3% interest and that, yeah. that can be a topic for a whole nother conversation. But I think, and also education, most people today, especially here in America, don't really understand what interest means mm. in that 3% by doing nothing as you know, right. you're wearing your money down three, per, three to five percent every year. Oh, so it's actually more, yeah. You know, yeah. If, you're, if, you're, if you're losing 
five bucks on every hundred every year, in 10 yeah. years, you're not going to have nearly as much money as you had. So I had this exact conversation with my assistant three years ago. She said, how did you get to be financially sort of comfortable? I said, investments. I said, I started investing when I was 13 years old. Just looking at companies and trying to figure out which one's going to grow and which one isn't. Mm-hmm. Which one pays its shareholders a little dividend every year and which ones don't? And you buy the ones that pay the dividend and they have a big market to grow into and you just keep buying them. Um, and you never sell them because eventually they're gigantic. I yeah. mean, a really good example is Apple, <clears throat> which I did buy. You know, you could have bought Apple at $15, $16 a share about nine years ago. Today it's a, what is it today, 175 something, or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's paying money out to its shareholders, 10 years. So 10 times earnings. Now, it's an unusual growth story, but there's lots and lots of other companies that do the same thing. Yeah. And that's where I tell my kids, we're going to, instead of putting it in the bank and spending it or whatever, you're going to buy this stock, you're going to make it, make you money. So when you're 50, you have real money and someone's paying you an income. And yeah, Warren Buffett, you know, it's funny because he's thing. just, he says, the simplest thing is, is the company going to be worth more in 10 years than it is today? Right. Like that's the whole basis for all his investing. He has three, he has three real targets, three real rules. One is buy a company that has, will pay a dividend and hasn't got too many competitors. Buy a company that's well managed and then live long enough <laughs> to enjoy it. <laughs> to reap the benefits, yeah, yeah. And for sure. live long enough is what you do when you're 20. Mm-hmm. The other thing you'd say with anyone who is 20 is network. Tell people what you do. Tell people what you do passionately. Don't spend time on social media because it's, it's not social. Mm-hmm. Social media is not, it's not social. It's social. It's, it's, it's fake. Go sit down with human beings and talk to them. Make friends. Tell them what you do. Be curious about what they want to do. And that's the most interesting thing in the world to me is finding out what other people do. I walk around and I think, what does that guy do? Who lives in that house? Yeah. You know, I want to overhear conversations and then break in and start talking to say, hey, I heard you talking about, you know, that <laughs> rocket ship you're building. What's your name? Elon Musk? Never heard of you. What do you do? Tell me about yourself. Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. That's fascinating. I like to be curious about other people, I think is really good. Yeah. That's the only way you learn anything. That's the only way you learn about other people. Oh, yeah. And you might find out that they do something that you think is really cool too and you might want to explore oh. it further. Right. I think that's really, really cool advice. And practice that conversation. I mean, I took away the TV a long, long time ago, so my kids didn't grow up with it. And consequently, they're good conversationalists because all we do is sit around and talk, yeah. have friends over, have yeah. dinner, talk. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> I agree. We don't have TV. Right. We have a TV, but it's only we only watch movies on it. It's not Remember, we used to have a TV in the studio. It's gone. Oh yeah. I never used it. Yeah. I had it here for eight years, and I never used it. Yeah. I thought, oh, I'll get a TV. I'll need one. Nah. Never used it. <laughs> you had mentioned like social media is not social. Right. And I agree with that 100%. And, and I don't know if I've shared this story on the podcast, but I, we were traveling around vacation, one of the most beautiful places in the world. And we're sitting at this lounge watching the sun go down and watching the palm trees and watching the ocean. And it's beautiful. And I look around and there's probably, you know, between 50 and 100 people in this outdoor lounge deck area. And 90 nine percent of them are looking in their phones oh no 
And I was just, I was blown away. But then what did I do? I took a picture with my phone and posted it on social saying, uh-huh. look at this in paradise. It's an addiction. It is. But then I put the yeah. phone away and we sat there yeah. and we enjoyed it. We talked and had conversation. But it's just amazing to watch. And that's, a, that's ubiquitous all over the world. It is now. We have a compulsion to share. But the most productive sharing is in person. Mm-hmm. I mean, I paid $150 to boost a post on Facebook the other day, which was my, I was boosting my workshop. The stats came back, 9,267 people had seen my boosted post, according to Facebook. Of course, you've got to believe them. I don't know whether that's true or not. <laughs> right, they're, right. they're selling me something. They they're telling you, no, no, trust us. It's only $150. You'll trust us. It was 9,000. Is that enough? Oh, okay, it was 12, whatever. <laughs> and then I saw 157 people clicked on it out of 9,000. But I only had three messages, one of which was, someone tagging someone else in a message saying, check this out, mm-hmm. who is another photographer, saying, look what this photographer's doing. You're a photographer. You probably find this interesting. The other two people said, um, how much is it? And I never heard back. <laughs> so I was thinking, if I'd been able to sit down with 9,000 people, I guarantee you 8,000 of them would have become clients. Sure, sure. It's just because, you know, every time I sit down with someone and we talk, they go, oh, you know, that's cool. You've got some nice pictures and you're a human being who's honest and nice. Yeah, if we need you, we'll, we'll hire you, you know? Right. And so yeah. I think that time is worth way more. I agree. Gold. I agree. So as we wrap up, any last thoughts about artistry, photography, life? Anything you want to share? Final <laughs> thoughts you want to share? You know, I always just say to people, do something creative. It doesn't matter what it is um, because that has true true newness and true value. And you never know what you might uncover, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. If you invent something cool because you were thinking creatively, you're set, you know? Right. Every single thing that is progress is a creative thought. And the creative people are the ones that invent things and make society bigger, better, faster, longer, whatever it is. Absolutely. Um, so do something creative. Yeah, for sure. Do something creative. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. And if people want to get a hold of you, I know I've looked, I've looked you up on the Googles. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and if you just type in Andrew Clark Photography, you own the first page. And that's Clark with a C, like Clark Kent. C-L-A-R-K. Yes. yes. Andrew Clark Photography. It's, it's all about you. You have great videos up there. One secret that I tried a long time ago is I tried to get all my friends to just Google Andrew Photographer Denver. How'd that work? Apparently it works. I, I did just, I originally just Googled Andrew Clark and you came up right away. Oh, good. But then good. when I put in photography, the whole first page was all everything about you. Well, wow, that's of a your miracle. Links. So yeah. um, people can get a hold of you there and reach out to you. I'm sure they can find email links and phone links and whatnot. You're also on all the social that's not social. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't support the Instagrams very much, but uh, I have a Facebook page. You're on Facebook, and I have an Instagram page, and I have a LinkedIn page. But you know, people come, f- stop in. I was going to say, come, studio, come find you and talk to walk you. Walk in. Yeah, All I like the that. best people I've ever met just walked in. That's awesome. No question. That's awesome. And we'll just mention you. You talked earlier on about uh, this party. Are you still throwing these parties on a regular? Yeah, we do. Um, we we host uh, an artist. Once a month, or nowadays once a quarter, 
any artist who has something unique to show, who may not be known. It's usually, it's usually people who have something really interesting to show and share, and they've never had a platform or an audience, okay. uh, which is how Rich Vanitsky first had a show, and I learned about him. Um, we've had magicians, we've had yoga teachers, we've had the poet laureate, we've had painters, sculptors, artists, musicians. Um, if you're good at something that's creative and you want to have a great party with a whole bunch of cool people, everyone can, it's better than TV, by miles. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so that's what we do. We just open the studio and anyone can come and do a show. We split the cost of the food and drink and we just have the best party in the world. And if someone sells a whole bunch of art, they keep it. I don't take any commissions on anything that's sold. Last guy was here, $5,000 worth of sales in one yeah. night. Wow. One night. And we only do it for one night. And that's why we call it Ephemera. Ephemera is the name of the party. Ephemera. So look Invitation for... only. Got to get on the list. That's right. Got to come in and be a human being and make contact in person. That's, Boom. When I first saw that, that's, yeah, that yeah. I was like, yep, there's, I want to I go. I want to come. There's no online <laughs> application. And you were like, okay, you're on the list. It's referral. Right. Right. And it was a great time. It was a great night. And it, it was interesting because I saw several people that I knew, but yes. they were all from different disciplines and different areas. And, and it was like a group of people that I would have never expected to see some of those people here. I'm like, and we were asking each other, how did you end up here? How do you know? Do you know Andrew? Do you know the yes. artist? How did yes. you do it? So I, I, that's always fun too. That's huge for me. I mean, the networking that takes place when you get a whole bunch of people around something creative is remarkable. Mm. I mean, people, you just, you don't expect things to happen that happen. And just like you, people come back because they go, I just met some cool people. I just don't believe it. I yeah. never would have guessed it. Yeah. I love that. Cool. I love that. Well, let's end it there then. There you go. <laughs> Andrew, thanks for being on the podcast today. Thank you. I really appreciate much. your time, your wisdom, uh, your thoughts on the world and politics even. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Jeff. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> The music for episode 30 is none other than electronic music DJ sensation Inigo Kennedy. The track is NGC 6826 Blinking Eye. Check out Inigo Kennedy anywhere you listen to your music. Are you ready to go deeper into the arts? Then sign up for the Crave Magazine Podcast Patreon. Starting with episode 26, we are offering a deeper dive into the artist conversation with extended bonus interviews. In addition, subscribers can get their hands on incredible limited edition prints as well as original artwork from some of the Crave artists. As you know, my mission is to bring art to the world, and as a Crave Magazine podcast patron, you will help make that happen. So please head on over to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Crave Magazine Podcast. As always, be good to one another and take time to feed your soul with art.